This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello everybody, and it's the seventh episode of Analyze at Anfield, your one-stop shop for everything Liverpool tactics related, statistics related, and everything else in between. I'm your host, Christian Walsh, and as always, next to me is Josh Williams. Josh, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right, similar to you though, we're a bit under the weather, aren't we? Yeah, I need to throw in yeah. an apology early doors here. I'm very, very much under the weather, and uh, Josh isn't much better, to I'm, be fair. I'm all right, like, but I've got a bit of an headache. Um, so it's one of them, I'll just be a little bit groggy, I think. I'm here, whereas with me, I might I might go into a coffin fit, I might even sort of fall onto the floor at some point. Um, but there we go, don't go to entry in the uh, team and rain when you've already got a chest infection. That's what we've learned there. Um, and also, uh, I would say don't go to Southampton, but uh, that's what I did. Um, and I was quite pleased that I did, Josh, because they, they won 3-1. I think what we'll do is look back at Southampton, a little bit of Porto as well, of course, and then look ahead to Chelsea, just to give you, the dear listener, a little bit of an idea about where we're going today. Um, so, you know, let's let's kick off with Southampton. Uh Strange game, Josh. Um, one which perhaps brought the worry that we all sort of maybe anticipated beforehand, though. Yeah, it was a bit of a messy game, especially in the first half. Uh, I was relatively impressed with Southampton. The fourth Hassan Huttle set them up ideally, just perfectly how you've got to set up an inferior team if you want to get in from them. It reminded me of the... Um, Nuno Espirito Santos' approach when Wolves drew with City earlier in the season. Um, back five, so City struggled to get any real channels opening. And the midfield four, though, crucially play at a level um, on the pitch whereby if the ball is won, they're behind. They're, they're in just crucial areas. They're behind our midfield, if you like. And they can get a lot of joy out of counter-attacks as a result. So Southampton got it spot on and bodes well for them in terms of Hasenhutl. But similar to the the previous game against Spurs, I thought it was again a game, a game of two halves. I think Southampton edged the first half, although we gradually seemed to come into it. And in the second half, I think they just kind of accepted the way it was going, accepted that we were playing for bigger things. And they just kind of succumbed to defeat. We spoke about the midfield before the game, Josh, and you actually predicted it. Or you, you said this is the midfield that Liverpool need to play. Uh, you went for Fabinho, Wadalda, and Keita. Yeah, funnily enough, the reason I said that though didn't appear to be the reason Klopp picked them. Yeah, so you, you stumbled into that one basically. Yeah, uh, I suggested it because obviously under Hassan Huttle they've got a counter-pressing tendency, so. Uh, we said last week, didn't we? It's different to high press, and it's not a high press, it's a counter press. So, whenever Southampton lose the ball in an offensive area, they will immediately, for like the following 10 seconds, maybe quickly press to regain that ball. And for that momentary um, pressure, you're obviously, you've obviously got little time, little space operating in tight spaces. And because of that, I, I suggested Keita should play. Fabinho should play, Wijnaldum should play, just to provide that composure on the ball and that press resistance if you are under pressure. But I really wasn't a fan of how the midfield was used. And this is what's frustrating, because the individuals will be 
blamed and it'll be the, the, the conclusions will be the midfield doesn't work wrong the way the midfield was used is the problem and I picked up on it fairly quickly I tweeted that after about half an hour um, the, the way in which he was the way in which Klopp had hint, instructed his number eights to be used in Keita and Wijnaldum they were just pushing on much higher than they ever usually would behind the opposing midfield into like number 10 areas almost like De Bruyne and Silva would do and that's fine as long as you compensate that elsewhere say for example if a fullback tucks in but that didn't happen so we played the the same system as usual but with more offensive more highly positioned um, number 8 so it resulted in basically 7 players being ahead of the ball and three being behind it, and it made Fabinho look awful, um, because he was just he was exposed, he was vulnerable, and you, Fabinho's not the type that will cope in such a in such a position because he's not the most mobile, he's not the quickest across the ground. It's not a Van Dijk in defence, for example. You no, know the way you could leave Van Dijk on his own there playing sometimes, and he can do it. Yeah, Fabinho was not necessarily like that as a holding midfielder. Yeah, and he's not—he's not a Henderson either, mm-hmm. and he's not a Fernandinho, for example. Those two, which we we will get onto eventually, were originally box to box players. They've got that box to box, uh, box to box nature. So the mobile, got stamina, able to cover the ground, um, and they were both converted into number sixes in aggressive, you know, highly demanding systems, and, and it worked. But Fabinho's n- not had that box-to-box role ever, as far as I'm aware. I think he's he's more inclined to play right-back ever. I think he mm. plays right-back for Brazil sometimes and things like that. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a knock on Fabinho's part either, just because he needs compactness around him and just because he needs cover around him doesn't necessarily mean he's bad. You know, you can think of top elite players out there that need a bit of, that need certain conditions to thrive. Say, for example, Pogba, he needs certain conditions to thrive. Diego Godin, Chiellini, you know, they're not going to do too well if you play, um, if you've exposed them in, in vast amounts of space because they're not the quickest. But the top players, Fabinho needs a bit of that around them. And at Southampton, certainly for the first half, we did not give me. And it was a systematic problem for me. And he looked, he looked awful and the midfield looked all over the place. I mean, we've spoken about the midfield a lot on this podcast already. You can obviously listen to the previous episodes in the archives. And we, we've we've spoken about how that midfield, the Henderson, Wijnaldum, Milner midfield, um, you know, it's 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 not as pressing, not literally pressing, but I mean, it's the, 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 the situation isn't as pressing because you've got the fullbacks, Trent and Robertson, who bomb on. But obviously, if they're still bombing on, and then you've got a more open midfield, as you say, it's going to leave spaces in behind. Is that then just going to skip ahead just quickly to the change on 55 minutes where Milner moves to right back? Is that a way of countering? That, is it a way of Klopp basically saying, Southampton are going to have the ball, so we might as well have an extra midfielder in here, you know, somebody, Trent. Is it literally just because Trent wasn't having a good game? Ultimately, what I'm saying, if they play that midfield again, would they maybe have to consider playing Milner at one of the full-back positions just because Robertson and Trent is probably a little bit too attacking? Yeah, I think from a Milner perspective, introducing them, 
we we've spoke previously about Klopp's tendency to fa- to um, think towards stuff like feelings and emotions and all that, all the stuff that you can't measure, mm. the intangibles. Milner's got a lot of that in terms of experience, know-how, and things and graft. So I think it was, I think the Henderson Milner change was to do with that. Um, but as well as that, you, you've definitely got a point there with, with what you've just said. If you are going to play with your centre midfielders more advanced, you have to compensate. And Milner is going to be more capable of compensating than Trent. I think I don't think necessarily think it's a personnel problem, because it's just it's just a role problem. You have to be. We would have had to be clear to Trent and to Robertson. I'm not sure if he was or not. That this isn't one of them where we can bomb on. You have to provide a, a, a defensive cover. You have to provide assurance behind you. And as I said, we were just attacking with seven. I posted a graphic on Twitter, um, just of of what it looked like with the seven players ahead of the ball and. It was just suicide, I thought at the time. I couldn't believe we were doing it against a team that's predominantly focused on transitions too. But once Milner did get introduced, obviously he's not as offensive as Trent and he's not as inclined to get up the line and stretch his legs, if you like, and, and all that kind of stuff. We we naturally then have a player behind the ball who's capable of covering. Um, and it, it definitely contributed to it. But if, it, as you said, if we was to use the midfield in that way again, you know, we've said previously about how the midfield plays defensively to allow the fullbacks to bomb on. If the midfield's going to bomb on, something has to adjust elsewhere. Something has to, you know, even Wijnaldum, I think Wijnaldum was perhaps tasked with providing a bit of cover here and there because on the average position maps that I've saw, his position's much deeper than I remember it. I'm not sure if that's just purely to do with where he was making his passes or that's where he was positioned most often. Because for me, he was positioned highly very often. But, you know, even if he was in that defensive role, for me, Wijnaldum comes across very slow a lot of the time. I don't know if it's just his nature or something, mm-hmm. but I feel like when, I, when I'm watching him like cover the ground, running, jogging, I know what it looks like when he's sprinting, and I know he's fast, but he never seems to use that top speed, whereas Henderson, you can see with Henderson that he's consistently using his maximum output in terms of his speed and stuff like that, and we saw that when he came on, and you know the, the, the Henderson-Milner change definitely made a difference. Just want to move back to the pressing for a moment. Um, I think it's hard to, to convey, really, how much teams are pressing Liverpool at the moment. Um, in recent games, because you know I've seen several you know pundits. I think Danny Mills was the latest one um, on the BBC, maybe saying that you know Liverpool are stumbling over the line. But you know, in, in terms of recent games, now the metric we use here, um, according to Y Scout, is the PPDA, which is passes per defensive action. Um, and that what that does is, if, you, if you're not aware, it, it measures pressing. It, it, it says how many passes the opposition will allow before they engage in a defensive action with you. Um, so the the higher it is, the the, the less the press, the lower it is, the the, the, the more intense the press. Uh, Liverpool's opponents' average this season is sixteen point six six 
passes per defensive action. Um, so basically, what that means is that on average, um, Liverpool's op- opponents per game will will wait for sixteen passes before they engage with Liverpool in terms of defensive action. Uh, Southampton, as expected, were lower. Um, we we said on the pod last week how that's one one of their strengths, their PPDA, and, and so they they pressed Liverpool. It was PPDA was thirteen point six eight, and teams lower than that average in the recent weeks: Spurs, Bayern twice, Everton, and even Fulham. Um, which might be the Scott Parker bounce. I'd be amazed if that was a long term uh, metric for them. But basically, four of the last five games. And five of the last eight um, have seen teams with a lower PPDA than Liverpool uh, usually face, which shows that they're playing these type of teams who get in their faces. Um, just really, you know, quickly, George, I mean, does that suit Liverpool? Do they want to play teams who press them because they can get out of those spaces? Or is it like the Southampton game there where you'd actually want to play teams who, who sit off because they've they've proven themselves to be able to break down these teams who, who let them have the ball? In general, I'm not too sure which we would favour. Um, I think we do relatively the same against both, but I think with us going into a pressure period now, you know, so decisive in terms of trophies and things like that, we would probably appreciate being put under less pressure, I'd assume. Mm. City very rarely get, you know, pressurised and they just win games at a canter. And for whatever reason, we're not being allowed to to win games so easily at the minute. I don't know if that's a self-inflicted thing or an opposition thing or a bit of both, maybe. Um, On that Southampton thing as well, Southampton's pressing. Just looking at their actual press map here. And they pressed, you know, pretty frequently up until half-time. And then... At half time, they obviously went in one one with with us pushing for the lead then, and straight after half time, their passes per defensive action falls off a cliff, mm. and they they go down as low as fifty one, fifty one passes per per um, defensive action. So they're allowing us fifty one moves, fifty one passes, whatever. Before they say right, okay, we're going to engage with you now. Engage, yeah. yeah. So um, I mean, it rises back up eventually, but not really until after we score mm. so I think gradually I don't know if it was a direct tactic from from Southampton but they gradually as the game progressed seemed to like retreat mm. and um, shut up shop if you like I think they were just getting more and more of an inclination that this is going to get away from us this is going to get away from us and Hassan Huttle said after the game the uh, the second Shane Long, Shane Long chance to make it 2-0 where he scuffed it, I think. I don't, don't even think he connected with it. Actually, mm. the ball comes in low on the floor. It's only Van Dijk then sort of has to turn yeah, over himself. Van, yeah. yeah, but Shane Long gets the opportunity to finish well before mm. it gets to Van Dijk and he just completely misses the ball. If that goes in, completely different game. And just looking back at the game in general, I was uh, we were very lucky, I thought. Um, on, on that thing that I mentioned before, relative to the space around Fabinho, we conceded five counters on that day, according to White Scout. Now, White Scout is odd with this kind of thing sometimes. So certain things that we would label as counter-attacks, White Scout won't. But, so five for them is fairly high for, for us at least. And I looked at the rest of our season sticking to White Scout and only three teams have, we've only conceded 
more counters than we did against Southampton. Uh, to three teams. Uh, so that that just highlights for me, you know, that how open we were in transition and stuff like that, and that's not like us at all. And we were I, we were very lucky, I thought, but we I think it got to the second half and the f- the last third of the match where we just kind of seemed to grind it out. We were just throwing everything at it, knowing that win we need we need to win kind of thing, and we eventually got over the line. Anyone is interested in pre- in what teams you know who presses the most out of the teams that Liverpool play for the rest of the season in the Premier League. Uh, Chelsea are fifth, Huddersfield are sixth, although obviously it's not really doing much for them. Um, Newcastle are twelfth, Wolves are fifteenth, and Cardiff are nineteenth. And I think I'd rather be playing Cardiff instead of Chelsea, for example. Um, we'll sort of park Southampton, but we won't because I want to just talk about what everybody's talking about, I suppose, uh, amongst Liverpool fans, and it's this new midfield, Josh. Um, you know, Naby Keita gets his first goal for Liverpool against Southampton um, and had a pretty decent game all round. He was third best in terms of pass accuracy um, and that was despite playing the fifth most passes, which I think for a playmaking uh, midfielder is it, good numbers. Um, and we'll talk about what he did against Portman, uh, Porto in a moment. Um, but then there's the change for Henderson as well. Um Klopp apologised to Jordan after they hit the Portal game for, for playing with the number six over the past two years. I mean, what do, what do we think? Is, is he a number eight now? Is this, is this his role? Is this just going to be a temporary solution? Is this Klopp maybe... Was he relying on Oxley chamberlain to come back at this point? And he hasn't, so now he's thought, what do I do with the seals that I've got available? Yeah, I think regarding Henderson, I think he's been a very good six. Don't get me wrong, I think... In that deepest midfield position, he's been very good. <clears throat> and you have to bear in mind that since Klopp came in, up until, you know, up until this season, really, we've been primarily a transition team and focused on counter-attacks and stuff like that and progressing quickly from A to B. But this season, we have more control about us and we have more possession and things like that. And, you know, more pragmatic and stuff. So when we were that transition team, I mean, we still are, don't get me wrong, mm. but when we were that transition team virtually every week, we largely required our number six to just um, force the game into chaos almost and constantly break up the play, constantly force turnovers and you don't necessarily have to be... Um, you know, pleasing on the eye in terms of what you do with the ball. I think this season we we have re- required a different type of six because of how our approach has changed. And I think Fabinho suited to that more so than Henderson probably. Uh, having said that, Henderson would still be able to fill in against, say, for example, top teams when the emphasis is on pressing. And the emphasis on counter attacks because Henderson will be aggressive, he'll be in your face. But having seen him last night in that number eight role, you do realise how good he is at that. Uh, it did take me back to 13 14 when we were going for the league with Suarez and stuff. And he is he is a force when he's in that role. He's he's so mobile, so quick across the ground, so aggressive, in your face, harrying. Work rates, endeavour. He just doesn't give you a minute. Covers so much ground. And 
if he's alongside the right player, which Naby Keita was perfect for, then, you know, it works very well. For Brendan Rodgers, he was alongside the likes of Suarez, Sterling, um, Sturridge, Coutinho was in the midfield mm-hmm. a lot of the time as well. Distinctly remember the Arsenal game at home when we beat them 5-1, was it? Yes. Um, Coutinho played in the midfield diamond, I think, there. He did. And I think Henderson played on the right of the diamond. And I remember them being all over Ozil and stuff like that and just winning the ball and stuff. And if you play him alongside a creating type or with enough creation in the squad, Henderson's a superb box-to-box midfielder. It's the only issue. And don't get me wrong, he was fairly creative against uh, Porto last night. But um, that's not his game, really. I mean, although it's dependent on his role, he's still never going to be the most inventive. He's not going to be the, um, you know, the deciding factor in the final third. He's not getting 20 goals and assists this season, is he? No, no, he's not even getting 10. Yeah. Um, and that's not a knock on him, really. That's just not his game. Players have specific qualities. Henderson's qualities don't necessarily be, you know, they're not necessarily in the final third. And the fact he played alongside Naby Keita with Fabinho in the role that suits him behind, you know, just work perfectly, perfect storm. I mean, ultimately, he's, he's still sort of playing the same kind of, not not role, but I mean, he's still, if you look at his heat map, for example, for the, the whole season, and you compare it to his heat maps against um, Southampton and Porto, you know, he's still sort of drifting out onto that right-hand side. He's maybe a little bit more advanced. Um, he's putting in more crosses. Um, he put in five against Porto. Um, I found that Southampton was actually his worst pass accuracy of the season but it was his season best in terms of shots on goal with two and that was in just 30 minutes as a substitute Um, you know and against Porto three key passes which is his season best Um, but his second worst in terms of pass accuracy in the Champions League campaign so his game has obviously changed hasn't it and and what's going to happen now is you're going to see, and, and, you know, his name was sung on the cop for the, for the first time I can remember in a long time. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I, I think in general, supporters haven't got time for the sort of thing that you were talking about when he played as a six, as in covering that ground, making it a little bit chaotic, making it scrappy, putting, you know, making loose balls that Liverpool can counter upon. Now you're seeing him create key passes, He's trying off interesting balls, but they're not quite coming through. He's pinging in crosses. I mean, he, he was really unlucky to not have the, the assist for Mane. Uh, he was just offside. So it's going to be interesting how his perception changes here with, with the general fan base because even though he's sort of doing similar kind of things because he's a little bit more attack-minded now, you know, his passing accuracy will actually go down. But because his key passes and his shots and all of those sort of attacker metrics will go up probably... Um, you know, he sort of might get appreciated again when he probably should have been getting appreciated. Look, I know he, he divides opinion. There, there are pros to Jordan Henderson, there are cons to Jordan Henderson, but he ultimately is a, is a, is a key squad player for for Liverpool. And some people just have never seen that. I wonder if this sort of change will, will get them on board now. Yeah, well, the, the thing that frustrates me is people very rarely seem to consider roles. And that that's ultimately the be-all and end-all, really, when you think about it. If you're on the squad and you get given a specific role by your manager, um, specific instructions, specific limitations, you have to perform your role accordingly. And 
if Henderson's role isn't about, you know, taking on 10 players and having all kinds of shots and key passes and things like this. I've I've had a problem with plenty of people this season regarding Jorginho, for example, because they seem to think he's not good because he's not scoring and he's not assisting. But <laughs> you've got to consider his position on the pitch and his actual role. It's not it's it's not to do with chance creation. He's as deep as the centre back sometimes. Yeah, you know. exactly. And Henderson. I think people compare him with, for example, Steven Gerrard. Gerrard played, you know, he didn't play in that position Henderson's played until he his legs went basically under under Brendan Rodgers. Before that, he was box to box all the time. He even played as a ten under Rafa. And this this is how you got to judge players. You got to judge players based on your expectations of them and your expectations of them. For me have to be relative to whatever role they're fulfilling. And what you've just mentioned there about his accuracy, his, his accuracy going down, his shots going up, things like that, that's because he's now in a role that incorporates more risk and he's now allowed to try more things because he's in a more offensive role. If he does them things in a deeper role, in the six, then it can have more of a detrimental effect. So it ultimately stems, stems from what you're expected to do. And that's how your perception will, you know, will be formed as well. That's why you say, for example, with Salah, because he's a wide player, we maybe didn't expect him to score 44, was he? In one season, 42. 44 it was, 44. 44. So when he did it, vastly out, you know, that wasn't what we expected. So we think he's a world beater, which he is. But if the plan all along was for him to be the goal scoring threat, and if he perhaps played as the nine, you'd maybe expect expect a bit more of that of him. So you have to consider what roles certain players are fulfilling. Maybe cater them. He's finally, finally, finally fulfilling the the expectation. Maybe that that's been with him since August. One of his best performances of the season was probably the first day of the season against West Ham, um, and he's finally sort of the past two games. Against Southampton, he was first half hour. I wasn't too sure. I thought, as you say, the midfield in general, and that goes back to the role argument where he's obviously been asked to play high in a midfield that's getting exposed. But against Porto, um, to me, it was almost a complete midfield performance from him. Uh, Just got some numbers here from a friend of the show, Dan Kenneth. If you're listening, hello, Dan. Um, You know, six tackles, 10 recoveries, six dribbles, two shots, two key passes, a goal. Um, he's doing bits of both ends basically, and this is this is the type of play that Liverpool thought they were getting, or certainly Liverpool fans thought they were they were getting when they signed him from Leipzig. He, he he's doing things on the back foot, um, but he's also doing things on the front foot as well. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of what I do, um, in terms of my job is to do with scouting and stuff like that, playing knowledge and things, and I obviously say for example. Recently, I've wrote for a lot of clubs um, in terms of what their perfect summer may look like. Clubs like Wolves and Aston Villa and Leeds and Liverpool, Spurs as well. Spurs, I think. I think Newcastle yeah. were in there. Yeah, plenty of teams. And, you know, when, when you recommend these players, I've, I've had one or two replies from the odd troll, let's say, <laughs> saying, have you ever actually watched these players? Or do you just get them off FIFA or something like that? 
the answer is yes. I have watched these players. But in, in the modern day, you're allowed to incorporate both viewing them and stats. And when you've got access to databases, you can use these databases to basically identify outliers that seem to have numbers that makes them stand out. For example, if you look at Lionel Messi's numbers without ever watching him play, you will know he's a ridiculous player and you will know there's something there worth human. And Kater is one of those. That's how Liverpool um, became aware of him, really. Because he was, you know, he was posting underlying numbers that were unique. And he was, you know, he, he was posting numbers that were unique in a defensive sense combined with an attacking sense too. He was demonstrating like a good amount of defensive duels alongside interceptions as well as completing a silly number of dribbles for the centre midfielder and carrying the ball and key passes, through balls and stuff like that. And that's what makes him an outlier in terms of stats. And when you watch him, He's clearly got that too. You can clearly see there's something special there, something unique there. Um, and recently, as you said, against Porto especially, we have seen, you know, the, the player that Liverpool identified and the player that Liverpool deemed so valuable. That's why we signed him a year in advance. Because he's he's a very complete player. He's got He's absolute all-rounder. I was watching clips of him before and he's such a unique unique profile with the way he takes the ball and the way he dribbles. What I mentioned before about Henderson now having more risk. You've got a lot of risk with, with Naby, that's the problem with that. It, well, it's not really a problem, it depends how you view it, but he's a he's a player that because he's you know, different and because he's still so still very raw in terms of how he uses his qualities and his traits, he will try things that maybe he shouldn't try. He'll um, take risks maybe in bad areas and stuff like that. And we've, we've saw that once or twice. But alongside that, we've seen, and he's demonstrated as well, you know, the, the things that really do make him unique in terms of the defensive aspects and the offensive aspects. It's interesting you mentioned about, you know, outliers and... and um numbers which 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 really make you stand out because of course we've spoken for a while now about Wijnaldum and you know we both think Wijnaldum's a really good player um well I do anyway I, I think he's important if he's not on the team sheets I was okay with him not being on the team sheet yesterday for example because I thought he needed the rest but if he's not on the team against Chelsea I'll be slightly concerned maybe not as concerned now after the way that midfield played against the against Porto but two different teams obviously to to contend with but you know, timing is everything here and has the right time come for Keita in terms of, you know, Klopp has got a dilemma now because you've got Keita who is the numbers man, the man who, as you say, stands out when you, you look at the, the, the underlying numbers against the man who doesn't really seem to do much when it comes to numbers. You know, you said before, Wijnaldum is a... Well, he, he's unique in his own. Well, I suppose not unique, but it's such a strange case, isn't it? Because there's not much there that you can get stuck into when it comes to analysing Wijnaldum, but there he is. He does his job and he's obviously very popular for Klopp. Um, so, 
know, which one would you be more inclined for the rest of the season? Obviously, it's a horses for courses situation, but you know, do you go with a man who's got the greatest underlying numbers and and can clearly offer a little bit of everything, or do you go with a man who we're not quite sure what he does and how he does it so well, but he clearly does his role to to perfection for Klopp? Yeah, when I saw this this punt on the agenda, it stumped me. Because uh, I, I did think to myself, that is an interesting question to pose. Because it really is, in terms of measure, in terms of aspects you can measure, it really is, you know, Mr. Output versus Mr. Non-Output. It's, it's as simple as that, really. If you look at Cases, cases Radar, which, I've been, which I posted the other day, looks very good. Unique for dribbles, unique for um, progressive runs, but still a good level of dual success, good level of interceptions too. <coughs> Whereas if you look at Wine Albums, you know, it's it's fairly basic. It looks like he does a very average 50% level of a bit of everything, except for creating, in which he does virtually nothing. Mm. So, but, uh, but again, then you have to consider the intangibles, so his personality, his tactical awareness, reliability, influence on his teammates, covering passing lanes and aspects like that. That they're things that you you know, we ultimately can't measure and they're things that you'd get a better feel for if you was inside the dressing room. Obviously Klopp has got a very good feel for him because he he's reluctant to take him out the side ever, really, feels like. Uh, but I think what you said there was key in terms of the horses of course thing. I think it's to do with the opponent and it's to do with if we can afford that bit more risk, then you play Nabby for me. If we have to be a little bit more clever, a little bit more safe, if maybe there's a bit more reliance on the fullbacks to attack, then maybe Wijnaldum's the better option. In the case of Chelsea, uh, it's difficult, that one. I'm not really too sure. I have to think about it. I haven't looked into Chelsea properly because no. I haven't done my preview or anything, but uh, yeah, it's 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 certainly something that's relative to the opponent for me. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Looking at the game in general against Porto on Tuesday night then, um, we sort of had a bit, not a disagreement, we just pick interesting in how Porto set up because before um, the game Josh you wrote about how Porto's 4-4-2 was basically carved apart uh, especially at the Dragao um, you know Liverpool kept on switching the ball out wide which meant everybody shifted over but that then that created holes in the middle to which Liverpool massively profited from um, it looked like a 3-4-3 a to me or a 4-5-1 Um but it was also a four four two. I mean, Conte South seems to have, from last season at the very least, nailed the idea of of changing tactics a little bit if things aren't going his way. Yeah, well, the crucial thing was he he started the game with what seemed to be a different type of system in terms of with and without the ball. So without the ball, they seem to morph into a back five which then obviously restricts any channels from opening up and it gives you better coverage in the wide areas and things like that 
So the whole advantages that we had last time we played them last season, when Virgil was spreading the play, you know, 50 yards across the field, that becomes less useful if you've if if they've got good good wide coverage. So, um, so yeah, he he adjusted in terms of that, and crucially though, when they went a goal down, he kept his head, and when he went two goals down, he kept his head. In Portugal last season, in the first leg, they very quickly panicked, very quickly realised this is the this is our home leg. We can't go too far behind, and he chased the game. And I think, I think at half time or maybe even before half time, he switched to a midfield diamond and just stupidly went for it, and we just picked him off repetitively on the counter attack and stuff. And it was a very naive approach last season, I thought, and this season uh, it was a bit more streetwise. Um. And obviously you had the likes of Militao in defence, who I was very impressed with. You can see why I well with it and insisted him. Well, he's signed. Yeah, signed. Yeah, well, 40-odd yeah. 40 million, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he'll be there next summer, which is yeah. good for them. Ramos, yeah. <laughs> long-term successor there. Yeah, and they had that Marega as well, who was talked up before the match. And usually when this kind of thing happens, they turn up and do absolutely nothing. Yeah. But <laughs> they he... did about Abu Bakr last season. And yeah, everyone exactly. was like, what about exactly. Abu Bakr? It's like, no. Yeah, exactly. But this lad seemed to, he did seem to influence the play. I mean, he, a bit reckless, but he did have a definite influence. And if you was to pick out, if you, if someone was to ask you now, without ever watching Paul's previously or anything, who was, who's their biggest talent, who's their you know best player, you'd pick out the pair of them. Same, certainly in, in an attacking sense, you'd pick out Marega. In a defensive sense, you'd pick out Militao. But, um, yeah, I was I was more impressed with them than I was last season. I did predict the 2-0 out to you, didn't I? You did. Before the game. But I didn't expect us to cause I didn't expect them to cause us the problems that they did. Well, they certainly did. Um, you know, like like you, um I was surprised. I was I was told before the game actually by a couple of people like near Porto, um, you know they, they will sort of go direct. They will they will look to get the ball and 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 turn Liverpool around quickly, but they really did do it. It, it felt at times, and this isn't to do with the, the service, but it felt like you were watching a you know a mid-table Premier League team at times with much better players. The way they just kept on. Playing that, playing diagonals, but they were finding them well. They were, they were sensible. They weren't just hoofed up for the sake of it. They were sensible, well placed diagonals and long passes. In particular, you mentioned Marega there. He got in behind Lovren a few times, didn't he? And that that, that was a concern. Um, I know with VAR sometimes you don't know what's offside and what is anymore because the, the linesmen don't lift the flags. But there were certainly a couple of times where first game back, of course, first start since Wolves in the FA Cup in January. But that's that 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 would be a slight concern maybe for the second leg, just how easy Marega kept on breaking the, the lines. Yeah, I was surprised with Lovren's inclusion, must admit. Matip, I think, had a bit of a knock, so Oh, okay. Yeah. Didn't know that. But you know, to to give him his first game in a Champions League knockout side was a certainly a risk there. Uh, I thought he for the large majority kept out of the way in terms of the the, the my one Worry, my one worry with Lovren is he's always been a good defender in my eyes. He's got you know he's aggressive, strong and that kind of thing. But the crucial thing is he's error prone. 
he's prone to a mistake out of absolutely nowhere. <coughs> he'll just he'll do something that is unnecessary, he'll, and he's not composing certain uh, situations which result in those mistakes coming about. I think we went through a period one time where we had Mignolet in goal, Skirtle and Lovren in defence. Uh, Moreno at left back. Moreno at left back. And... Probably Klein. <laughs> reliable Klein. Klein. Yeah, reliable Klein at right back, yeah. But when you look back, that was such an error-prone back line that, you know, it's untrue. And Lovren's the only survivor, really, of them mm. at the minute. Yeah, so that's that's my main worry... You know, whenever he's included, it's not that he's going to have a bad game and he's going to let us down. It's that he's going to have a, a one-off individual moment where he just falls to bits for no reason. Um, although Marega did get in behind him a couple of times, I thought that, considering it was his first competitive game for a while, I thought he did... When I say he was uninvolved, I mean that in a good way. Mm. I mean, you know, he, he kept his head down and made up the numbers enough for me to be okay with it do I want him to start again ideally not I think he's fell down the pecking order for me uh, I'm not like a hater of him or anything like that I've never been one of them to bash him but massive impression since he's came in Joe Gunner is obviously on a different level to him I think he's getting on now as well in terms of age and I think he's he's been rumoured at least to to be leaving in the summer regarding like a £30 million asking price or something like that. I'm not sure if it's reliable or not. But I think out of the defenders we've got, you know, you'd probably, especially in this this decisive period too, where a tiny slip-up can, can cost you in both competitions that we're in, you'd probably want Lovren away from the starting eleven that can be, if it can be helped. But obviously if Matip took, if Matip took a knock, then, you know, that explains his inclusion, I suppose. Yeah, well, Joe Gomez wasn't even meant to be on the bench as well, but Moreno was a fitness worry as well. So um, coming at the wrong time, those sort of little niggles, but Liverpool got through in that sense. Just sticking with the defence, you're not going to see James Milner much as a left-back um, again this season, I imagine. But Liverpool definitely lacked something, didn't he? Because I don't know what you thought, but for me, it, it made Saifel Salah had a good game against Telesh and... It was even more impressive because Porto, to me, seemed to defend that side because they knew nothing would be coming down the left-hand side because every time James Miller will get the ball, the, the, the ball's only going one way, and that's back in field. He's not going down the line. Didn't really link up with Mane that too much. Um, Mane had a pretty quiet game by his, his, you know, his recent standards anyway. When you, you, I don't think anybody takes Andy Robertson for granted anymore. You know his name's always sung on the cop. I think he's he's you know obviously one of the most uh, creative fullbacks in Europe, um, and that's just a, a little bit of what he does. But does 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 what he what Liverpool lack when he's out? It, that should be sort of on the shopping list, surely, or, or certainly a look around the academy of there needs to be somebody who's fast, who's direct, who's physical. And who can, you know, put a good ball in to replace Robertson if the worst comes the worst and he and he is out for a prolonged period of time? Yeah, well, the whole Milner thing I picked up on quite quickly because I think, you know, it must have been inside a minute or something like that. He received the ball in, it was in our own half, but he had vacant space ahead of him. And it was the type of moment where Andy Robertson would, would drive forward with the ball and... Milner immediately 
took the ball backwards with his right foot in, inwards and passed back to Virgil. Yeah. And that's to do with his, you know, his, him being right-footed, him not being a natural left-back and stuff like that. So that's that's immediately what you lose. Pep Guardiola spoke about the the necessity to have, you know, left-footers basically in your team. And that's why he speaks about playing Laporte every week because he says, like, you know, having a left-footed centre-back, you know, encourages the speed of the play because he doesn't have to take all kinds of touches to then move the ball over there with his right foot. And it helps with build-up, basically. And, you know, when you haven't got Robertson in there and you've got a makeshift in there, it doesn't, you know, you, you do lose an element there. But at the same time, thinking about it, Milner is going to obviously in that role, he's going to be less inclined to attack, less inclined to get forward. But who was our left side of the centre midfielder? It was Keita. Mm. Keita got forward, scored very influential in the game. And you could argue that if Robertson was playing, maybe it might have been overload on that side. Maybe it might have been too offensive. So what we were speaking about earlier regarding, you know, a, comp- a compensated move elsewhere in the team to compensate a certain other player, that's maybe what Milner was able to do. Keita was able to influence the match by playing offensively and taking all kinds of risks and things like that. Perhaps because Milner was providing the assurance behind him. Um, so, you know, it's just about making subtle little adjustments like that. If we do lose Robertson, okay, play Keita, tell him to get forward, tell him to come out wide a little bit if he can. And they're the little subtle tweaks that, that you know, you've got to do. And that's what we were speaking about last week in terms of Pochettino. That's what one thing he's very, very good at, them little subtle tweaks. Um, and if you're good at doing them, then you find a way to win even without your best players. So have we got any worries for the second leg, Josh? I mean, I thought it was I thought it was professional. I think it veered on the tightrope sometimes between professional and sloppy, um, which I know is it sounds a bit strange, but at times I was watching it and going, this is really professional, they're doing well. It feels like they basically, from 60 minutes on, sort of said, right, we'll take the 2-0. Um, it's up to you now, Porto, to break us down. Um, because obviously they've got Chelsea on Sunday, they've got a long season still to play. Um but, you know, despite the couple of nervy moments, surely if Liverpool get a goal in the second leg, that's that's it. Yeah, well, if Liverpool do get that goal, they have to score four. Mm-hmm. So I can't see us going there and not scoring, personally. I don't really, you know, envisage any trouble there and like that. And although, I said, although, as I said, I was impressed with them in terms of what I expected. They were on a better and more streetwise level than... I expected them to be. They've obviously learned from the past. I still don't think the... Um, I mean, unless the occasion gets to us, unless something mad happens. I mean, I wasn't... A, I was concerned with VAR during the match. Mm. So if that's to play a mad part in the second leg, say, for example, like he was, was at the game where yep. he put, there was a moment whereby they had a penalty shout for the most random thing ever to do with Lovins' arm being in the air or something. And around that moment... Salah went for the ball and went over the ball. It looked quite bad, but there was nothing in, nothing in it in terms of a challenge. It wasn't nasty or anything like that. And BT got filled out at the time to look at the penalty. And Phil Dowd was distracted by the Salah incident and said, this could actually be a red card. I, I on that, during that moment, was 
Hard mouth. Yeah, you know, I yeah. was like on, on the edge of my seat because I was like, if, that, if that, we lose a man here, that's a, that's a different story. So if that kind of thing comes into it in a second, like, you know, all that nonsense where like stupid decisions are given when from a logical perspective and a football perspective, they shouldn't be given, then obviously you could be in a bit of trouble there. But from a football perspective, I can't see any issues for us. Fingers crossed. Can you see any issues, Josh, then moving on uh, to Sunday? It's Chelsea, it's uh, Maurizio Sarri, it's Eid Hazard. Um, just a little bit about Sarri, because I know you've looked at him quite a bit um, since you started here at uh, Outreach. Um, you know, what? what's changed, if anything? What, what, what do you make of a season? Should Liverpool be... Is Klopp coming up against this this Italian maestro, basically, on, on Sunday in, in the dugout? Or, you know, is, is there a little to worry about in that respect? I think with regards to Sarri, it's been a long season. Because uh, <laughs> I've, I've, every time there's a development, I get tasked with writing about it. And then the next week, he's, you know, there's another issue or something. Uh, but, you know, I, I could spend probably a full episode talking about it because what he's doing really is he's trying to instill the exact system that he, you know, cre- created, if you like, at Napoli. And although it looks free-flowing and it looks, you know, beautiful on the eye and all that stuff, it's really, really focused on strict movements and everybody has to be on the same page for that to work and that kind of stuff. And you obviously need... Obviously, demands a lot from his players for that to work. And it's the type of system whereby if one cog kind of fails or breaks or whatever, the whole system does kind of struggle. This is largely why he seems to refuse to rotate because he wants to work with a set group of his best players, regardless of their age, and, you know, get the system, get the mach- get the machine ingrained into their games. And this is why up until about... must have been February, he, he just was not deviating from his favoured 12 players, maybe. I think the 6-0 was the... Yeah. Was the Nadir, wasn't it? Yeah, and that was the maybe 6-0. the catalyst for change. Yeah, well, the 6 0. That was a real knock that. Against Man City, by the way, if you, do, if you don't remember. Yeah. yeah. But in that match, it was suicidal, genuinely suicidal. So naive, his pressing approach. I don't know why, but. And this stems to what we were talking about before the difference between high pressing and counter pressing. He opted to high press Man City at the Etihad, all the way to the goalkeeper. Now, if you're doing that, you're going to leave space open. And if you're doing that, you have to have mobile, fit players. Chelsea have got an aging team. And they've been under Sarri for one's, not even a season yet. So, you know, Klopp's Liverpool would struggle with that approach to an extent. And we're arguably the fastest and fittest in the league in terms of squad and players and stuff. And... They just got torn to shreds. I mean, don't get me wrong, Aguero scored, you know, one from outside the box and Gundogan scored one from outside the box that fumbled in past Kepe, which he should have saved. But at the same time, it was just a stupid, stupid approach. And when they then played them in the final, they adjusted to, in terms of the defensive line, so they didn't press as highly. They instead opted to go for kind of like a mid-block um 
to restrict that space that City can play in through. And they played against them for 120 minutes, nil-nil. They lost on penalties, but obviously Sally had learned. And a couple of weeks later, they played against Spurs, beaten 2-0, didn't concede again. He'd adjusted that um, defensive line again. It's just to be a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more streetwise. But I think Sadi arrived in England just too idealistic. And he very quickly, well, not quickly, it's over too long. He learned that he'd have to be a bit more, you know, cautious almost. And that's probably what we're going to see at Liverpool. We're not going to. City got to play, luckily, a super wide open Chelsea mm. and beat them 6 0. We're playing that same team in the league. But arguably a cleverer version who aren't going to be as open aren't going to be as expansive even if they're not open or expansive they are going to obviously play in Hazard you would imagine 17 games against Liverpool 7 goals uh, but more importantly and more relevantly uh, 16 goals and 12 league assists which is uh, if you haven't got your calculators out 28 goals or assists this season um, for a team who okay they were in third when they beat West Ham but you know they're they're in that next tier after Liverpool and Man City. They're not they're not a bad team by any stretch of the imagination. But you know 28, 28 goals and assists. Is he the biggest danger left to Liverpool's title hopes? And how do you stop him? And can you even stop him? I think the answer to your first question is yes. I think he's ridiculous. Um, you know people talk about people often have debates about who do you think's the best in the league, things like that. I think that always depends on your own perception and what you value is important. So some some people will look at ability, talent, ceiling, and, you know, that kind of stuff. What a player can do with the ball if he's on it. And the best in the league in that regard, without doubt for me, is Ed Nazard. In, you know, closely followed by Pogba, I'd say, in, in, in that specific group so sheer quality and stuff but then if you look at output and consistency and influence on matches that's when your likes of Mo Salah comes into it uh, De Bruyne last season for example players that regularly turn up and actually influence the scoreline consistent output week in week out um, and that's perhaps where Hazard falls off a little bit this season he has had the output, obviously. But you you still feel like he's got more to his game. That's the scary thing. He's, I mean, for me, as I said last week, I'm not the oldest person in the world, but he's the best performer I've seen at Anfield. In terms of turning up every time he comes, uh, not being phased by the, by the occasion, not being phased by the crowd and just doing his thing, he's the best player I've seen play at Anfield. Yeah. Uh, just doesn't seem to that the occasion gets to him. And we, we were talking earlier about Henderson and how good he is with harrying and being aggressive. Hazard just seems to walk past him. He just seems to stand him up one-on-one. And before Henderson knows it, he's chasing after him. Did that in the cup game, didn't he? Yeah, it was, I remember it was unbelievable when he done it. Uh, I don't know how you stop him. I think you stop him just through your standard club approach by using the units, by being a collective and stopping them together rather than you know, certain managers would maybe man mark him, but that's never been a clock thing. That's he's not he's not like that. He's a, very much a 
together team thing. Um, and I think it'll be along those lines, but I, we've just got to hope. The, the one positive regarding this fixture is the week that Chelsea have got in terms of the games that they play. They obviously played last night. I think, was it last night? You, uh, Monday, Monday, so they Monday played West Ham Monday, they play Sparta Prague Thursday, they play Liverpool uh, Sunday, and then they play Sparta Prague again on Thursday. So it's. Yeah, yeah. You know, 10 days, four games, basically. Yeah, but to, to play Monday night and then to play again tomorrow. Mm. And do you, do you know what I mean? That's Is the Sparta leg away, is it? Yes, I'll double check what I think it is. Well, although, although that, if that's away and although that's a relatively weak opponent, I still think, given the stage of the tournament, I still think Sadi will play the likes of Hazard and stuff like that. I think he'll play his strongest team. Mm. So that that's the one positive out of it. And that, that could perhaps um, indicate that they might be late goals in the game, maybe. Might be a late surge from us, another late surge from us, because we seem to be doing that a lot lately. But in, in the fa- I, I'd be surprised if we if we win the first half, for example, just because I, I do rate Chelsea in terms of individuals. I do rate Hazard. I do think we'll concede, um, but I think we'll come on strong. It's not helping me nerves, this Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it really isn't. Uh, you're talking about individuals. Yes, they have got some really good players. Uh, they've obviously brought Rublev's cheek back in. Um, he's doing well in the midfield but I just wanted to just before we finish just a potential weak point um, different, again different team different setup, different scenarios different stadium but uh, I thought Mo Salah had the better than Marcus Alonso massively at Stamford Bridge in terms of Marcus Alonso is not a left back um, he's a left wing back isn't he he, he vacates yeah. that, that, that that space massively Salah had a couple of chances and and, and, and Fails to to, uh, to capitalise, you know. Alonso's struggled so much this season that that Emerson Palmieri is actually sort of vying for his number one spot, which is, is incredible when you think about how Alonso was considered one of the best fullbacks in in, in the league at one point. Um, is that is that a big hope for Liverpool there if they if they play against uh, Marcus Alonso and, and Salah can maybe get in behind or do you think as you say Sari will go more pragmatic and even if Alonso does play or if it's Emerson Palmieri it's a deeper back four I think it all stems from how they are going to approach this one um, it'll be a very interesting tactical you know tactical battle because when, when we faced them at Stamford Bridge I think they'd won a lot in a row that was during the period where it was a three-horse race for the title. Uh, they had a lot of confidence, a lot of belief in Sadi's methods, and so so when you're when you're pressing a team that has a lot of belief, they're gonna believe they can play through that. Uh, although they didn't that often, when they did, they scored. Remember Hazard's goal, Stamford mm-hmm. Bridge. Super neat little playthrough. Um, link up play with Kovacic, Kovacic I think yeah. it was Jorginho and Hazard. Just literally two touch football. Um, and he did that. that that's what Sadi's approach is about, really. He, it's about um, enticing the team into press. And then when they do come into press, you then slice through them very quickly using technical ability and combination play and stuff like that. If they try to do that, at Anfield, obviously a tight pitch. Now they're not 
as confident, I'd say, in his methods. Um, I'd say they're not as confident playing out as they were as, as they were back then. I can see them maybe getting penned in. I can see them maybe struggling to get out their own half. But if they use the approach that they did in the cup final, for example, whereby the you know there's there's more of an allowance from Kepa's perspective to just hit long from goal kicks, then it will be trickier. So. From my perspective, I would like Chelsea to have a go and I would like Sally to believe in his methods, obviously, and try and play through us from the back. If we do, if they do, I can see us causing them a lot of problems from pressing moments and rather than Salah being the individual threats, I can see us just pressing as the playmaker kind of thing and us just creating through their disorganisation and winning the ball high up. But if they don't and they go along and they are more pragmatic like they have been, then maybe then we are more reliant on individuals like Salah. Um, getting in behind might still be tough though because uh, we might then have more of the ball if, the, if, that's, if that's their approach. They might then come with like a counter-attack and, um, style. But it's it's really hard to predict, but it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Just have to hope that Liverpool do get the three points because... The way it's going, it feels like that they need to get the three points in every single game now. Um, you know, a, a points wouldn't be the worst result in the world, but it really does feel like it's going to be five wins for five, doesn't it? I think the, the game before will be key. Yes, yeah. The game will. before will be key. I think if if Palace get anything from City, we will surely go into that with the ground bouncing mm. and the players aware that this is it. If we want it now, seize the moment. Do you think that changes anything tactically? Just that quickly. Do you think that's? Do you think? I mean, Klopp will have done all of his work in uh, at Melwood on the training pitch. But you know, if, let's say if Crystal Palace managed to win one nil, does that change Klopp's perspective? Then does he think, well, you know, maybe we need to go a little bit more defensive. We can you know, whatever you do, don't lose. You know, it, it's it's interesting, isn't it? It is. But I'd, I'd I'd be surprised if it changed in, tactically mm. in terms of the strict plan like the approach from the off. But what it would change is, you know, the natural motivation of the players, mm. um, the enthusiasm, things like that. And, you know, depending on how you perceive things, that influences tactics to an extent because a lot of a lot of pressing is about your mental state, how committed you are to the cause. You're obviously going to be more committed if you think this is the moment whereby you go top with five games to go. It'll be four after that. There you go, four games to go. So Four very winnable games as well. Yeah, so <laughs> although it doesn't change, I, I don't think it changes the tactical plan, it changes how maybe the tactics are implemented. Yeah. Uh, maybe the press becomes more efficient. Um, maybe that results in Chelsea going longer, things like that, so... You know, there's, there's loads of influence and factors, and I do I do think that the results of the, the match that getting played before us, I do think that will have some kind of impact on the match, positive or negative. Just have the fingers crossed. Roy Hodgson can do Liverpool a solid for the second time this this uh, this season. He, 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 I know. he owes he owes Liverpool one or another. Um, thanks very much for joining us, Josh. Oh, one last thing, please. Whatever you do, just just stay on your feet. Don't don't 
yeah, just don't give the ball away on the halfway line like Stevie did. Um, <laughs> please. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of a sick feeling in my stomach as we sign off this week. Uh, thanks very much for Josh for joining us. Um, we'll be back next week, hopefully, with Liverpool, if not top, well, hopefully Liverpool top of the league still. Maybe with even a, more of a cushion than they currently got. Uh, and, and full steam ahead to Porto so we'll be back I think we'll be recording this on Tuesday next week ahead of the Porto game so we'll be looking back at Chelsea thanks very much for joining us always send your feedback make sure you join the Blood Red podcast group on Facebook and give us all your, your feedback on that uh, and have a great weekend thanks very much bye you've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo